This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Jennifer Templeman, CFO of Jumpstart for Young Children, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 329. I went out to California where this facility was, and on second shift, I worked this high-speed packaging machine for eight hours. I almost died. It was the hardest job ever in the history of my life. It, it was a lot like that Lucy episode where she's trying to work the chocolate factory, and things are getting worse and worse, and she almost blew up the entire facility. That's basically what happened. Uh, but I learned a lot, and I learned what it's actually like to do the job at the company that you work at, what it's actually like for the guy or the gal on the floor to do the job, which I sometime lost that perspective by sitting in the air-conditioned office that's being provided to me by the hard-working people out on the floor. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we bring you a little something extra, or rather, our guest does, Robert Bendetti, CFO of Lifecycle Engineering. Besides sharing insights into his career building and finance leadership, Robert explains why and how he went about establishing the Charleston CFO Council. Another insightful finance leader, another memorable episode, begins after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking to Robert Bendetti, Chief Financial Officer of Lifestyle Engineering of Charleston, South Carolina. Robert, welcome. standpoint, it's something that's on a lot of job applications as a 
as either a required or a preferred. And when I was younger, I saw that and I thought, you know, I'm going to knock that out and get that that CPA so that when in the future I have the experience uh, to go behind my education, I'll be qualified for the job. And then I, I, I think for me and, and something I also recommend for others to prepare to be a finance leader, in addition to education, you've got to have the experience, and in particular, I think, be the kind of person who volunteers for the worst projects at the place you're, you're working at, the stuff that nobody else wants to do, uh, the unpopular projects, and be willing to locate. So uh, not to take on the easy projects and just do your job, but be willing to volunteer for the thing nobody wants to do and relocate to the the worst location or the underperforming facility or the overseas location nobody wants to go to. Transfer to a different uh, industry that's maybe underperforming. And I think in addition to that, the education experience, if you want to be a finance leader, I think it's exposure outside of your company. So get involved with your community, whether that's civic or professional or faith-based organization. People need financial professionals in their volunteer organizations. They need accountants, they need CPAs. We offer a really unique perspective, and because of our educational background, we have a set of tools that other people don't, and we can be of a really big impact to civic organizations, professional organizations, and faith-based organizations. May I ask, did you personally uh, make such a relocation in the past? Did you relocate yourself from time to time? Oh, absolutely. I, and I think it's been critical to my success advancing. It's hard, uh, maybe even impossible now, to to work your way up over a 30- or 40-year career and be the CFO. And so I thought another alternate path, path would be that when opportunities arose, uh, either by me pursuing them or by me being pursued, that I'd be willing to move. And I moved to Atlanta and from Atlanta to Savannah and Savannah to the Carolinas, and most recently now in Charleston, South Carolina. People relate to the, the cities you mentioned. Can you mention some of the companies that, that you were working with through those relocations? Absolutely. When I was in Atlanta, I worked for Lockheed Martin in their aeronautics division. They have a large manufacturing facility in Marietta, Georgia, which is just north of Atlanta. And then I transferred. At that point, I was a lead business manager at Lockheed Martin and had finished my MBA. Really enjoyed Lockheed Martin, excellent company, but a large company, and it would be the kind of place you'd have to work 30 or 40 years to potentially maybe, if you're lucky, work your way up to CFO, and I didn't really want to wait 30 years. So I transferred to Savannah, Georgia, Hormel. The Hormel Corporation had just purchased a subsidiary headquartered in Savannah, Georgia, and they're replacing the management. And I took a director-level position in it in Savannah, Georgia, and loved it. Another great company, uh, this time food manufacturing, which was new and interesting. I got my master's of accounting degree, and that's where I became a CPA. And again, learned a lot, but Hormel is another big organization, and I knew that if I, I wanted to be the CFO of Hormel, I'd have to put in my 20 or 30 years. And, and again, if I was so lucky to have the opportunity but I didn't have that kind of time. And so I thought another alternative would be to work for a smaller company that was a high growth uh, coming out of the startup phase and needing to invest in some, a senior financial executive. So I went to work for a high-tech, fast-growing uh, logistics company headquartered in Savannah. 
with offices sort of all, all over the southeast region. I became their CFO and loved that and learned a lot working for a small company where you're having to do uh, many jobs at one time or all at the same time, hiring and creating a new organization. Very fast-paced. It was both uh, exciting and stressful, but in a fun way. And then took a job at a uh, an operating firm for a private equity company. It's a private equity firm with 76 operating companies. I was the operating CFO for one of them, and I did that. Uh, that was more of a travel job. I went all over the Carolinas and all over the Northeast and uh, Southeast Asia. I did that for a year, and I hit my capacity of enjoyment with travel, and I thought I need to settle back down to uh, a job where I travel occasionally and not constantly, and saw this opportunity here at Lifecycle Engineering at a professional service firm. We're a mid-market firm headquartered here in Charleston, South Carolina. That was not a hard sell with the family. Charleston, South Carolina is awesome. It's a beautiful place, and I work at a fantastic company. You revealed to us sort of that uh, unique place in time when you made the deliberate uh, decision not to continue to build your career in a large enterprise company and instead move to a mid-sized company where you could perhaps more quickly uh, enter the C-suite. Can you take us back and maybe reveal more of what you were experiencing at that time? I mean, I think it's sometimes easy to, to rethink these things and question the past. And, and fate's a funny thing. It, c- it can work in your favor, too. It can. If you hit the, the timing and the opportunity arises, it's possible that you could accept a senior position working uh, under and sort of under the tutelage of the CFO. And because of the timing here, she might retire and be exiting just as you're becoming uh, mature enough and have enough experience to accept the position. It's just really rare. And that was certainly never my experience. I never had that opportunity. And so I thought that I could make my own opportunity. I could create my own opportunity by by being willing to accept a position at a much smaller firm, no name cachet, but uh, that this would be an exciting adventure. It might, the the stresses that a small business that's fast growing can also be a quickly, uh, can quickly go out of business. But it would be the opportunity to learn not only the financial roles of an organization, but to support and help marketing and IT and purchasing and human resources, something that I wouldn't have had, didn't have at a firm the size of Hormel or Lockheed Martin. I found that very appealing, and so when the opportunity arose, I talked it over with my wife, who I really consider my life partner, and we both thought it would be an exciting opportunity, and so I jumped in. Okay, well, let's find out a little bit about lifecycle engineering, the business, and discover uh, uh, what are its offerings and uh, how it keeps its edge out there, given I'm certain there are plenty of competitive offerings today. What would you share with us? Lifecycle engineering is a professional service firm. We like to say we bring an engineering mindset to consulting. And our company can be broken into two groups. We have a government contracting piece of our business, and we have a commercial consulting piece of our business. 
the government contracting piece, we basically provide people as a service. Uh, government contracting human resources to provide services to government. And then on the commercial consulting side, we provide a solution. There's a problem, and we provide a solution. The problem might be around engineering or maintenance, and we're trying to help manufacturing companies uh, pursue excellence. And as far as how the competitive landscape is changing, I have found it in my now four years professional services, it's very competitive. Uh, the services are in high demand because manufacturing firms are pursuing excellence and they need support in improving engineering and maintenance and scheduling and planning and operational performance, but there's a lot of competition in the marketplace. A lot of big names with big cachet uh, and a lot of mom and pop small firms. And we're, as a middle market firm, and this is true of any middle market firm, I, I certainly feel a kindred spirit when I listen to your podcast and I hear the other CFOs, no matter what the industry is, sort of talk about how they feel squeezed in the middle. I certainly feel that. And I think uh, that can be, it, it can be an advantage being quick and agile as a mid-market firm, but have enough liquidity and resources to to support bigger clients than a small firm, but it's still competitive, very competitive, and it can be difficult as a mid-market firm in this space. Could you tell us something about your arrival and what you uh, did to begin moving your team in the direction you wanted? Uh, for instance, did you have to reorganize finance? I think that my role and anyone's role as chief financial officer one of the important things is if you're going to hire smart people, and we always we all say that we do, then I don't think my job is to tell people and dictate or come in with the idea that I need to reorganize anything. It's more about listening, and then if I'm doing something, it's to reduce distractions. And maybe that's me not being the new guy with 100 new initiatives creating the distractions or eliminating the distractions that are being created by others. So I'm trying to reduce friction in the sales process. I'm trying to eliminate non-value-added administrative steps. And I'm also not trying to create them, be the new guy, the new hero coming in, the, the uh, firefighter who's going to come in and claim the success because I'm the recent new hire. I think it's more important to, since I've changed a lot of jobs, I found it more successful to be the guy who is willing to listen, to take feedback, and act slowly. We always like to ask the question, what are the, the key metrics that you rely on to reveal how the company's performing? I'm wondering, uh, just to add something to that question, would be when you arrived there, was there a metric that perhaps you brought to the forefront that you uh, revealed uh, to the management that this is something we should pay closer attention to? Anyway, as you answer that question, <laughs> I would just tack that alongside it. But what are those key metrics you are uh, you rely on today? Number one in a professional service firm is labor utilization. You could look at that and only that, and it'll tell you 80%, 90% of everything you need to know. You, you could almost not even close the books. If you have a, a full and complete understanding of labor utilization and are your resources, your people, your team members, are they utilized charging to clients? That tells you most of what you need to know. So I think 
the KPI for a professional service firm and certainly lifecycle engineering is labor utilization. That's a bit of a lagging indicator. So a couple of leading indicators I think are also important are backlog and pipeline. It's important to know what funded PO work do you have in the near term. So you need to have uh, you need to be actively looking at backlog. And then what's the future? Are you filling that backlog with future work? How does your sales pipeline look? And so I think a combination of labor utilization, backlog, and pipeline are the key metrics to look at. Have you at times tried to make uh, certain metrics more top of mind with with the management, with uh, whoever it might be, the board, or whoever you feel you need to, uh, you know, educate? I do. I think re- repetition is key. I used to be surprised at how much I had to repeat myself before it got absorbed by not just the staff of the entire company, but even just your management team, that I thought at first that maybe I need to repeat something once, twice, three times, but I found it's 10, 15, 20 times, almost to the point I'm sick of hearing myself talk, then I know maybe I've pierced through. So I think repetition is really important so that it gets absorbed by the team and the full team through all the ranks. And so if repetition is important, that takes time. So it is also important to not change the metric, change the message constantly. Not a, there's not a new message of the month from Robert Bendetti. It's got to be something annual or multi-year so that you have time to repeat it and let it sink in absorbed by the full team. As a professional service firm, certainly measuring customer success is always a, an important component, I imagine. But what would you tell us? Are there ways that you're, you're measuring customer success new and different today, or what are you up to? I think three key ways to do that are checking in your client advocacy and referrals. What kind of referrals are you getting from your former clients? How many new clients do you have reaching out to you saying that, Julie over at company XYZ gave me your number, said you were a huge help. We've got a problem. Number two would be return clients, that you have a client returning to you. Maybe for, I'll use an example at Lifecycle Engineering. The perfect example of a return client is somebody who comes through the Lifecycle Institute, which is our training arm, to receive training on something like engineering and maintenance excellence, and then calls us back a year later and says, I really learned a lot receiving that certification. I have uh, a goal where I need to apply this in my region of facilities. I would like your help, and it becomes a consulting project. And then a year later, they call back, and Julie says, hey, I've been promoted to the vice president of engineering and operations. I need to uh, replace myself at the director level. Do you guys do any talent, do you do any staffing, or can you refer me to someone? And we can say, yeah, we do that too. And then third, in addition to the client advocacy and the return clients, I think also conducting quality assurance reviews is a little school, but actually having an intentional engagement, an intentional conversation with your customers, they appreciate that. And then showing follow through after you receive the feedback is invaluable. Okay. There's a uh, finance strategic moment for you. 
I mentioned that because I'm about to ask you for another. Uh, we always like to uh, ask you for a uh, moment of insight that you've experienced along the way during your finance career, uh, where given your lines of sight into the organization as a finance leader, you were able to identify an opportunity, a risk, something strategic. What would that have been? I think an aha moment I had was when I worked at Hormel, I was talking to some of the old-timer ops guys. One key metric that we had was cases per hour as a productivity measure, and I was a big advocate for pursuing excellence, relentless effort in the pursuit of excellence, not perfection because perfection is impossible, but excellence. And I thought I was doing uh, that and trying to ask people to raise the bar, increase productivity in this in this measure. And one of the old timers was like, Robert, you, you, you'd never run one of these machines. This, the rate you're talking about of efficiency is not possible based on the mix of SKUs that we do. And we argued about it for about 30 minutes, and then I realized he's been doing this for 30 years, and I've been doing this for like three months at the time, maybe six months, and that it probably would be a good idea if I actually learned how to use this machine. And so I, I went out to California where this facility was, and on second shift, I worked this high-speed packaging machine for eight hours. I almost died. It was the hardest job ever in the history of my life. It, it was a lot like that Lucy episode where she's trying to work the chocolate factory and things are getting worse and worse and she almost blew up the entire facility. That's basically what happened. Uh, but I learned a lot and I learned what it's actually like to do the job at the company that you work at, what it's actually like for the guy or the gal on the floor to do the job, which I sometime lost that perspective by sitting in the air-conditioned office that's being provided to me by the hard-working people out on the floor. And so since then, I've tried to do that. When I worked at the logistics company, I became certified forklift driver and uh, worked in the warehouse using a forklift with no air conditioning while the supervisor screaming at me to hurry up. When, and here at Lifecycle Engineering, we have a family of brands. Um, uh, one of the things we have is a learning institute where we teach classes on things like engineering excellence, maintenance, scheduling, and planning. We also teach change management, and I taught a change management class to another professional services firm. Again, just to learn what it's like to actually do the job on the floor by the team. I think it gives me a perspective that I otherwise wouldn't have. Okay, well, regarding the people on the floor and the talent that resides throughout the organization, we want to ask you what your priorities are as a finance leader when it comes to the workforce? What is it that you're paying attention to? I think there's a, there's a shortage of talent and there's a high demand. Uh, it's a great time to be looking for a job. I know just trying to hire good people, it takes a little longer because there are fewer people, people looking. And when you do find the right candidate, they can command uh, uh, a fair wage uh, or an above average wage. So we try to do our best to hire smart people and then help them achieve their goals. And And I try to always, with a, a nice, friendly nudge, help people pursue excellence. And now, is there a metric you pay attention to in regards to talent and the workforce? At a, 
a professional services firm like ours, it varies. All right, so I'm going to answer this kind of generically around talent management, and hopefully it'll apply to any industry. I think as a senior executive, what we need to do is, is help people develop goals that they think are important for the year. What do they think is the most important thing that needs to happen? Something that is the singular initiative to unify their department's efforts for the entire year. Regardless of what I think, it, it helps them, them identify, the department manager of that area, the, uh, of that profit center, what is their singular initiative. And then once they had, then to help them break down that goal to achievable steps and then follow up, have they actually done what they said they were going to do? And is there anything that I can do to help them with the process? Anything popped up? that's a distraction that I can eliminate. Am I the distraction? But to follow back up with them, not just set the goal that I want and see if they do it, but help them set the goal that they think is important, help them break down that task into achievable bite-sized pieces, and then follow up with them to make sure they are achieving that. 90% of the time, this singular initiative that they come up with is a really good idea. And it is something that is critical and helpful to the organization. Okay, we're going to move to our mentoring round now, where I get to ask you uh, several quick questions intended to allow you to offer advice to your peer finance leaders as well as aspiring finance leaders. I also just want to give a heads up. I want to ask you about the CFO Council that you helped establish there in Charleston. And I think our listeners would find it uh, pretty interesting that this is not a branch or a chapter of a larger organization. Instead, this is something you decided Charleston needed, and you went ahead and started it up. So we'll want the uh, the scoop on that. But let me first uh, hit you with our, our familiar list here of questions, uh, beginning with, what is one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? What would it be? I think technology and the rate of change. I read an excellent article that I'm just sort of, I mean, this is very recent, so I'm just sort of uh, absorbing this, but around the idea that we're past the phase with technology as it impacts accounting and finance of adoption, and now it's to dependency. And what does that mean for our role as financial executives and for our team. It was a really interesting article around that we've all been to the conferences where it's been a major focus around, yeah, technology is in every part of our lives, and the rate of change has been absolutely amazing. We've seen those curves, but we're past adoption, and now we're into dependency. And so as a provider of some technological solutions, our customers are dependent on the, these products and how you can create advocate clients by 100% uptime and training so that your customers know how to use your services because they depend on them now. They couldn't provide, they couldn't perform the functions that they uh, without it. And I just, I found that really exciting, interesting. It was like an aha moment to me. I know they're, I mean, my smartphone, if I leave, if I don't have my smartphone on me for five minutes, I, I almost have like a panic attack. Like I, I would turn. I have turned the car around and come back to the office. I couldn't possibly not have my smartphone for 18 hours until I, I get uh, back from uh, from a weekend. So true. 
Um, that's something many people will certainly relate to. What do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career when you first stepped into that office? What is it that you wish someone had told you? You can't make people do anything. You can, or at least not for very long, certainly not when you leave the room. I had this misconception when I was in college. I always thought that the the men and women at the executive level of their firms, they just make these edicts from on up on high from the mount, and they come down with the tablet, with the goals and the tasks that will be completed this year, and that I, as a worker, and all my coworkers, we will just do what we are told. And life just isn't like that. People don't you do that. They certainly don't like being told what to do. And at best, you can nudge people in the direction. You can keep them out of the ditches, but you, you can't just make edicts. People uh, won't do it, or they certainly won't do it when you leave the room. So I wanted to make some space here to ask you about the CFO Council uh, that you formed in Charleston. And um, clearly you put a, uh, place some importance on networking, no question. Uh, maybe that's where we should begin and ask you about uh, how important is networking to you and why this council was established. I'm a huge advocate for networking. I think it's absolutely critical. It's a way to get back. Uh, just being connected in a civic or a professional or faith-based organization. But uh, you also receive so much. I've gotten a ton out of this. I first heard about the CFO Council. There's one other sister organization in Savannah. When I lived in Savannah and I had a director-level position, I asked the guy who started the CFO Council of Savannah if I could start going to their meetings just to learn and be around other senior financial executives. And I just loved the monthly meetings. It was a way to network, and it was an educational forum. When I transferred to Charleston, I thought, this would be really cool to kick off in another city in a way for me to meet the local Charleston folks, of which I knew no one. And so I emailed the guy who started the one in Savannah and said, do you know anybody here in Charleston? And he said, there's one other guy who used to come to the, the, the Savannah CFO Council meetings, and he moved to Charleston. And so we started going out to lunch. And once a quarter, for like two years, we'd have lunch and talk about doing it and did nothing. Every We'd have an awesome lunch, and we'd talk about how cool of an idea it would be, and but we wouldn't actually do it. We'd always come up with some sort of excuse. And then I, two years in, I said, okay, let's just send out an email to everybody we know, which wasn't that many people, and we're just going to say we're going to do it in like three or four months. We'll just say we're going to have our first meeting and see if anybody RCPs. And we were overwhelmed with the response. We had 50 people at the first meeting. We had a sponsor and a speaker in no time. And it was amazing, the response. And I think the CFO Council, now there's two, Savannah CFO Council and the Charleston CFO Council, is a real special organization. There, there are other financial executive groups, but I think that the CFO Council is uh, different and special, and it's been fantastic. Yeah, I just want to, uh, and, and I think you've made the point, but again, this isn't associated. There's another CFO Council now that's growing nationally, but that's not this. Uh, this was uh, just the two locations, one in uh, Charleston and one in Savannah. Is that right? Correct. 
there's there's probably three or four other financial executive organizations, all slightly different. I think they're great. Um, many of them are at larger cities, and the CFO Council. I'll describe that. Let let me start off with that. So the this Charleston CFO Council is an educational network forum for senior financial executives and the resource companies that we partner with. So that means that not only are CFOs and VPs and treasurers and controllers members of the organization, but also bankers, lawyers, CPAs, consultants that we partner with to do our job. There's a cap on the percentage of resource companies, 20%. And that's for the benefit of the financial executives, but also the resource companies. And we meet monthly. And we have a speaker at every meeting that covers a timely topic. And um, with our next meeting, actually, tomorrow. And, I, you know, it's it's interesting. I, it, one of the things that occurs to me, and again, um, I'm familiar with the, some of the different groups out there. Um, it surprises me that you guys sort of sprung this up just sort of locally and and um uh this is, can be time consuming sometimes to pull these things together i mean is it the the finance leaders themselves or did you have a, a third you know someone helping organize this was one of the banking community stepped forward and said hey we'd like to uh to help you with uh, organizing this regularly or uh, no how do you, no <laughs> it, it is time consuming it, it's a kind of a night and weekends uh, labor of love Roy Austin, the gentleman who started the one in Savannah, had it really down to a system. Here are the steps to start a meeting, host a meeting, pre-meeting, post-meeting, and I had a nice game plan to kick this off. I think one of the critical things for this organization and for the something like the Charleston CFO Council where both CFOs and resource companies are attending meetings that it's critical that the person who's kicking this off in the city is a senior financial executive. When I email or call or meet on the street another financial executive and I tell them about the CFO Council, I'm not selling them something. And it's received in a different way than if a banker or a consultant emailed every CFO in town. It's just another spam email that that senior financial gets and they just delete it. So I think it's one of the keys to success to kick this off in a in another mid market city, which I would like to do and help senior financial executives in other mid market cities set up an organization like this, is that the partner, the person with that interest in a mid market city, is a senior financial executive. It's much easier to reach out to people in the local community as a senior financial executive to another senior financial executive to tell them about the organization. It's much easier. It's received in a in a positive way, and it's not a hard sell. That's the thing I was really surprised. I thought, man, I'm never going to get these bean counters out of their office. They're they're going to think they're way too important. They have no time, and it's not. It's been uh, it's been an easy sell. Uh, sometimes I have wait lists to the meetings because I have more people who want to go than can go, and it's it's uh, it's been fantastic. 
Do you, uh, how do you identify potential speakers or do the, the finance leaders themselves make suggestions who to reach out to or who, who, you know, or, oh, here, I know somebody who does this well. Let me, let me reach out. How is it done exactly? Yeah, two parts. So the first thing at the beginning of the year, every year I send out a survey for potential topics for the year. And then I receive feedback from the members and then I'm able to prioritize which one gets more votes. And those top, 12 to 15 topics, then I try to link up, when people reach out to me and say they'd like to be a speaker at one of our meetings, I link up those topics to the people that are reaching out to me, so that I'm, all, I'm, I'm covering, because usually people, people reach out, they have three or four things that they speak on. Some regional speaker for the firm has four or five topics that they're going around and speaking on that year, and I, I, do, I play matchmaker in that way. The meetings work on a speaker-sponsor model, so the, the sponsor of the meeting, ha and the, the, the cost of sponsorship is the cost of breakfast and paid directly to the hotel. It's, it's a not-for-profit entity. I'm not trying to make money on this. Uh, the sponsor has the option to bring the speaker. They always do. And then when they ask me, here's the three things that I would be interested in speaking on, I've never – those are always timely topics. They, they know our organization, and I match those three topics up with the highest prioritized one that isn't already covered and match them up. Thank you uh, for providing that extra detail. I thought I was asking one or two extra questions in relation to it. I know a, a lot of finance leaders are probably curious about how to – how to establish these types of organizations to serve them best. And um, can I, can so, I uh, sure. just as a selfish, I'd like to cover one more thing on that is then why I do it. So if it takes up all this time, my nights and weekends, and it's not for profit, then why am I doing this? Because the answer is it's because I, I seek website sponsors from the resource companies and then I give that money to the Educational Foundation for Women in Accounting, which I'm really passionate about. And uh, you don't even have to include it in the podcast, but I just feel uh, what, like what, I wasn't why is trying. It, when did you be first uh, become familiar with that uh, cause or organization? And, and what led you to, uh, you know, want to yeah. put some thought behind it? I'm a member of the Institute of Management Accountants, the IMA. And I attended one of their conferences many years ago and was listening to a speaker when I was getting my CPE, and they were speaking about the Educational Foundation for Women in Accounting and the purpose of the organization. And I just thought, wow, that's a really great purpose to try to support uh, women as they pursue their higher education degrees, not only with money, but also training and mentoring. I thought that's a really cool organization, and I just made a mental note when I got to the end of the year, and we're looking for organizations to make some donations to. I thought, oh, I'll make a donation to the EFWA. And so did that for a couple of years, and then was at an, another conference, saw the same person speak, and began talking to her about it. And like any good member of a volunteer board, she said, hey, would you be interested in volunteering? And she just happened to catch me at the right time. And uh, I said, yeah, that sounds cool. I'd be a volunteer on your you know, board of advisors to help out in some way on a committee. And so I did. And so several years I've been on different committees and volunteering my time to support the organization and 
think it's just a great mission and wanted to support that in some way. It's nice how you integrated uh, sort of the cause and the, the opportunities together uh, with the council that's been created now. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trail on back to our, uh, our traditional questions here and ask you if there's a personal habit that you have that you believe has contributed to your professional success. What would that be? I think it's, I'd say diligence. I thought when I was in school, I might not be the smartest person in this room, but actually probably. Okay, definitely not the smartest person in this room. But I can control how hard I work and how much time I'm going to put into this. And so I've just tried to carry that through. And sometimes it's an unhealthy to an unhealthy level, so you have to really watch that if you're also a person who on the plus side is diligent, but on the negative side can, can overdo it, can be a workaholic. So you have to balance the good with the bad. But from a positive standpoint, I believe that diligence or dedication has contributed to my professional success. I am willing to work longer and harder than most people. I might not be the smartest or the fast or best person, but I will work more than you. I will work longer than you, and that's helped me in my career. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? I got a great book recommendation. Just finished it, hot off the uh, plane. I had this in my stack to read for a while. It was recommended to me and knocked it out in one flight out to the West Coast and back. So this is a pretty quick read. It's called Extreme Ownership, and it is, it's basically battle-tested business principles by Jocko Willick. He's a former and retired Navy SEAL, and it's a really interesting setup with the book. Half of each chapter is a basic business principle that's laid out like any other business book would be laid out, but then the other half of each chapter is how it was battle-tested, something that uh, while the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or in some uh, military setting, how, how using these principles uh, saved lives and helped make that battle successful, and it was a really fascinating way to absorb the information. I just loved it. Again, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willick. I thought it was awesome. Okay, great. We haven't had that one before, so excellent. Want to uh, one, one one more milestone we have to mention uh, before we uh, get to our final question, which is uh, the milestone where you were a finalist in the CBiz uh, photo contest this year. Am I? Do I have my information correct? Yes, I was uh, the first loser. I was. I got. I think second place. <laughs> was it a photo of uh, – were you uh, performing some athletic feat? I was. It was a collage. I tried to make it interesting. It was pretty much the – I mean, I'm an accountant, so uh, for me, it was unbelievably creative. Uh, it was a collage of several pictures of me doing stuff like running, biking, swimming, kayaking. I had uh, I'd seen the photo contest before and thought it was fun and uh, a humorous way to celebrate – that finance folks have fun too, that outside the office were pretty cool people, so I thought it would be fun. And for me, it was a way to celebrate losing 50 pounds last year. 
and having the energy to go do physical stuff. So I made a little collage of me doing different activities with my family and just as like a fun celebration of being a little further along on my own personal wellness journey. <laughs> That's pretty sizable feat right there. I mean, is that just, uh, would you tell us diet and exercise? What was your uh, secret? For me, I have found out that losing weight is 90% nutrition. Fitness is important. Having a training program is important. But losing weight, 90% of it is nutrition. It's more important to focus on what you're putting on your in your mouth than how much you're exercising. And I think a great quote to help it sink in is that you can't outrun your fork. It's just not possible. You could either not eat the Snickers or run five miles every day of your life. Running is great, and it's good for you. But as far as losing weight, it'd be a lot easier to just not eat the Snickers. And so that's really what I did last year is I just watched what I ate and tried to be sensible about it and make a little small change every week over a long period of time. And, again, I lost one pound a week for 50 pounds. I lost one pound a week for 50 weeks and lost 50 pounds in total. Thought Leader listeners, a special shout out to CBiz for connecting us with finance leader Ben Deddy, runner-up of this year's CFO photo contest. Now please stick with us. Robert will be sharing his 12-month finance leader priorities after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. As you look forward over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? My priority is helping the organization grow revenue and profit from operations. And I think that one way I can do that is by heeding some of the advice I said that senior financial executives should give to their team by having a singular initiative. I think that as a, as a senior leadership, sometimes we, sometimes we come up with too many goals. And so I've recently, very recently, partly from reading the book I recommended, I think it's m- maybe this year having fewer goals with a singular focus so that we can be decisively engaged something that we cannot retreat from. We must win, a must-win battle that really gets the whole group energized around that singular focus. And I think something like increasing revenue and profit from operations as a singular goal could be exciting. And then use that as a filter when you're looking mid-year through and should, ooh, there's this emerging thing that pops up. You can ask yourself, how does this help increase revenue or profit from operations in the next 12 months? If it does, do it. If it doesn't, it's not no, it's just not now. Robert Bendetti, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. 
Jack, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I'm a listener. I love the podcast. I think they're very educational, and it's been an honor to participate. Thank you very much. You're very kind, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.